There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. She got into my arms. She loves flowers. And I was like, I'm so sorry. She has autism. She was like, she's fine. Well, on Oliver Plunkett Street in the middle of broad daylight, there's a group of young men just getting high. For somebody coming in off an ambulance trolley, I have found that we physically do not have enough trolleys. Join the conversation. Call 0818 969696. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with P. Jay Coogan. Parks 96 FM. Friday. You're choosing about Friday. One, you love Friday because it's the end of the week and you're heading into the weekend and, and all that. The other reason is you hate Friday because, well, things can go wrong. <laughs> and I trust me, if it wasn't for Fergal Barry in the last two and a half minutes, I don't think I'd be here talking to you right now. Thank you, Squire. Good morning, 0818 96 96 96. The number, the text or WhatsApp is 083 396 96 96. And your email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Now, this time yesterday, we were talking about Mr. Tuberty, and the general feeling in the room was he was on his way back to RTE. Whether listeners liked it or not, listeners, I mean, to, to this programme, liked it or not, Mr. Toberty was on his way back uh, to RTE. We learned that a, a deal of 170000 a year, a considerable pay cut for the man, was on the table. He would be doing his morning show, he would be doing a podcast uh, about what we don't know, and it was all on the deal, on the table, bar signing it and, and getting it over the line. And then... It didn't happen. And then last evening, he got a phone call from Kevin Backhurst, the Director General, pretty much saying, uh, well, actually, Ryan, uh, we've been thinking again, and thanks, but no thanks. So the door's not firmly shut, but for now, you're not coming back. So what went wrong, if you're non Sheehan of the Irish Independent? Good morning. Cheers, that door is fairly hard slammed there now, Peter. I'm not sure about it not being shut. I mean... Uh, what went wrong is that on the RTE side, uh, they're saying that Ryan Tuberty issued a statement the other evening after a report came out that exonerated him mm. uh, uh, on one particular aspect of this entire controversy. And that within that, he effectively challenged uh, another part of the, the controversy, uh, which is around the, the Renault deal and the declarations of his pay and so on. Uh, this was based on, on you know, Ryan Tuberty's interpretation of, of what came out uh, in, in that uh, Grant Thornton report you've been discussing in, in recent days. Yeah. Uh, he said, look, this, this shows that the originally declared salary figures for me for 2020 and 2021 were correct and nothing else was declared for 2022. So what, what, what was the problem? And RT basically are quite sensitive about that. And the management, the board are basically going, look, you, you need to show a bit of contrition about that that Renault deal, uh, and therefore it, it all blew up. So from 
Ryan Tuberty's side, basically saying he's only reflecting what it said um, mm. in in a report that was issued this week that in it that entirely cleared him of any wrongdoing whatsoever. In fact, pointed out that he tried to prevent the wrongdoing that took place. Uh, within RTE uh, by its management regarding payments to him between 2017 and 2019 where he did, he did nothing untoward whatsoever uh, and that he was basically just reading that report and saying well this is what, what it also says so it, it did flare up it, there seems to be an underlying issue and this does go back to Ryan Tuberty's appearances at the Oireachtas committee hearings uh, a month ago mm. and that, that is that he, he's basically never really acknowledged there was anything wrong with that, that Renault deal that it was you know effectively a means to to pay him money in a in a separate manner to compensate for the, the loss of earnings that mm. he was incurring uh, due to the uh, the cut in his in his salary, that this was going to comp- compensate yeah. him in in a different way, and yeah. so on and so forth. He didn't he seem to read the room, Fionnan, did he, with regard to the independent uh, to the, the the Renault deal? Did he? He didn't seem no, to be reading he, the room. He's he has he has always maintained that that there's no problem there, and that he. Uh, he he didn't accept there was any uh, issue with it. Everybody else observing it uh, involved in it has basically said that 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 was wrong it was it was basically uh, a means by which uh, he would pay additional funding uh, it was a concealed payment a, a secret secret payment uh, it it was not transparent uh, and so on so he's had a, a difficulty with that one from from the off mm. on on the other half of of the payments issue he said from the start look from 2017 to 2019, I was paid what I was paid. I never, never got anything else, uh, and that this was about the manner in which RT handled this from an accountancy practice. He was absolutely and utterly correct there, and if anything, you can argue that he was declared guilty until proven innocent uh, yeah. on on that matter. Yeah. Like when, uh, we, when we spoke during the Oireachtas hearings, when we spoke during mm. the Oireachtas hearings, he his his. His contribution there had won a lot of support back for him as to how he felt he had been treated. Yeah, yeah. What came across to me last night, Seanan, was Kevin Backhurst here is also a man with a big job to do to clean up the house. And he has to be seen as taking control and he has to be seen as taking no nonsense. And yeah, he had to st- he had to step in here. Yeah, he's he's saying that there was a bit of messing around here. That Ryan Tuberty was was muddying the the waters. That he wasn't showing the required uh, contrition yeah. that that he that he needed to show, and that that basically this had been an underlying issue in the negotiations that were on ongoing uh, with with Ryan Tuberty. That that he really needed to to acknowledge that there was an issue there. Now, ultimately. Ryan Tuberty kind of was acknowledging there was a problem there in that he was going to pay the money back. Yes. He was paying back 150 grand paid to him directly by, by RTE, not the 75 grand that was paid to him by Renault and then RTE paid them back. So there was 150 grand on the table that he was paying back. Now, if there was nothing wrong with that in the first place, then why was Ryan Tuberty paying yeah, it back? Yeah. Uh, so there was, there was a tacit, very direct acknowledgement there that there was there was quite clearly uh, uh, an, an issue. Yeah. But in terms of him accepting look, this deal shouldn't have been done. I'm very sorry about it. Uh, it's caused a great deal of upset. It it was 
something different to what was uh, has been characterised. He always had a difficulty on that front. Mm. And this went around the houses f- for the best part of seven, eight hours inside an Oireachtas committee where himself and his agent, Noel Kelly, kept on defending it and saying, no, no, the, 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 the invoices were legitimate and there was no problem here uh, whatsoever. It, it was just a, a deal that was done. It was, it was under underwritten. So that was always a, a difficulty the advantage he had this week, and and uh, he was on the upswing, was that this highly anticipated report was was coming out. It was it, it very much was in his favour, and it did also very much point the the finger uh, of blame at at RT's management. Kevin Backhurst used a phrase last night that summed up Ryan Tubbery's problem. He said he was the face of the scandal. He said he was the face of it, mm-hmm. and that was the difficulty here. The image of Ryan Tubbery resonated uh, with with people people saw him as as the cause of this uh controversy and basically both his departure and and his his planned return were were going to be a difficulty uh for RTE uh that that difficulty has now been negated and RTE yeah. also have the advantage that they they can now turn around and say well the amounts of money that we were paying to our to our high earning stars uh, that era is is gone. Yeah, yeah. We had nego- we had negotiated, if not signed, a deal with the biggest star in the organisation for a fraction of what he was earning, salary of a third of what he was yeah. on uh, previously. Now, one of your headlines in the Independent this morning says, "Don't cross Kevin Backhurst." How Ryan Tobey's comeback deal was pulled over his lack of contrition. So, look, that's he seems to have messed that up for himself, if you're to interpret it that way. But, but Kevin Backhurst's decision. Do you think the public will support it, Fionan? What do you think? Do you think RTE has done the right thing here? Kevin Backhurst put the foot down, says, "I'm not a man to be messed with. I don't care who you are. You're not above." Um, my 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 discipline, such and such. Do you think that'll go down well with the public? Will they start paying their license fee again? Yeah, well, that that that's the difficulty. I mean, he certainly laid down a marker in terms of his his dealings with with staff, uh, people within the organisation itself. Will will see that there's there's no messing around here. Nobody is bigger than than the organisation, and the show will go on. I mean, Ryan Tuberty's show at 9am to 10am on RT has has continued over the course of the summer without him and now we know that it, it will continue yeah. into the future uh, without him at least for the for the, for the time being anyway maybe he comes back at some point in, in the future it does still create a, it's still not a good week for RTE they, you know they have a scalp uh, a very high profile one at the end of the week but ultimately we have again seen the lapse and the lax standards that that were in play in in RTE uh, during this this time period, utter lack of of transparency and accountability shone through uh, here in 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 terms of how they dealt with both their accounting procedures and also their their transparency and accountability to to the public and to the national parliament uh, in terms of basically concocting away to reduce a figure so that it, it looked different yeah. at a time when they were lobbying for for extra money to be provided to them yeah it's it's this this is not over by any manner well, it's not over. Any... I, I, I don't really see that that dumping ryan tuberty out the door is going to solve the problem that they have at the moment which is a lack of trust uh, with with the public and people just deciding that well I'm not paying paying yeah. my license fee 
uh, that that's still a, a, a big issue for them. And it's one that, that's growing because this crisis is by no means over. Every week that goes by, that, that additional numbers of people don't pay their licence fee, That that's money that's not going to RT. Exactly. Uh, before I let you go, Fionan, have you seen the new Late Late Show logo? No. It is uh, outrageous. There's no owl. There's no owl. It wasn't the owl brought back. It wasn't the owl gone, though, under Pat Kenny and then was brought back under Ryan Tuberty. You may be right. You may be right. I, you can check that one. I did, I did notice something on the way. On the way. I, was go, I was in RT last night and I was heading up towards the makeup room. And previously there was a corridor there that along one side of it were all Ryan Tuberty's outfits from late, late toy shows, about a half dozen of them there. And on the wall was about a dozen photos of late, late toy shows over the course of, of the last decade. That was all gone. The Ooh. only thing left were the hooks on the wall. Crikey. So written out of history already. Right. I got gotcha. you. Written out already. And we'll see where whether people like the new Late Late Show when it starts on September 15th. Fionan, thank you. Fionan Sheehan of uh, the Irish Independence. So Tubbs is gone. The door, well, Kevin Backhurst has said in RTE this morning, the door isn't always closed or always closed and forever. But for now, he gone. He gone. 0818 96 96 96. Um, let's be honest, says this call, uh, Toberty is good at his job. We might all like to see someone coming down to our level, but it's going on too long. Where are the inquiries into the HSE, into the performance of our politicians? At least Tuberty is good, or was good, at his job. Training cats and dogs at the moment, but in Leinster House, it all seems to be raining money. 0818 96 96 96. There's a question, though. Now that Ryan Tuberty has been shown the door, and if you're to listen to Fiona on there last night, it's almost as if his memory is being erased from history at RTE. All the pictures of him in the toy show outfits and regalia over the years, they've all been taken down. They're all gone. It's as if he never existed. All that's left is the nails in the wall. He got a phone call yesterday evening from... Kevin Backhurst to be told, uh, no, you remember that deal we had on the table? No, we're, we're taking it off the table now. That's uh, Kevin Backhurst speaking on RTE this morning. That's kind of standard, though. Uh, look, we're going to terminate your contract for now, and look, we'll, we might work together in the future. It's like getting a PFO letter. You know, we have no vacancies at the moment. We wish you success in your career, and please... Uh, please come back to us in the future and we might have an opportunity. He's been shown the door and that door has firmly slammed behind him. We'll see where it goes. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Quartz 96 FM. Oldies and Irish on Quartz 96 FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Sunday morning.
Hey. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Cork Simon. Do you want to leave a legacy to the city you love? Find out more about leaving a gift in your will at corksimon.ie. Cork's 96FM. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96FM.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96FM. Yeah, Fergus sent me that Late Late Show logo uh, last night when he saw it. We might, will we share it, Fergal, on Twitter and see what people think? The owl is gone. Um, the owl was taken away, if you're not Shane's right, the owl was taken away during the Pat Kenny era. And then when Tubbs took over 14 years ago, came back by popular demand. Now the owl is gone again. It is outrageous. I just wanted to use that word. 0818969696. Now, it was last Saturday, around 20 to 4, Fiona Corcoran. Was this in your shop inside in uh, Merton's Key? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Hi. Is that where it was, Fiona? That's it. Yeah, Merchant's Key Shopping Centre in Patrick Street. And it was a red cash box. And it basically disappeared. One of our volunteers. Yeah. yeah. One of our volunteers. Kindly was on duty. She was chatting with a customer, went back to the counter, and the, the box had been taken with over 200 euros. The box and all was taken, yeah? Box and all, red cash box was taken. And, you know, things are very difficult at the moment, as you can imagine, with like, war against Ukraine. We've got our Ukrainians literally from Cork to Donegal that we're supporting. We've got a humanit- uh, humanitarian aid hubs right through Ukraine. So it's a very, very difficult time. And 200 euros mightn't seem a lot, PJ, but it is to a charity and a charity like ourselves that would feed like an elderly couple in Ukraine for like a month, four weeks, would you believe? Really? Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. so it's terrible to think somebody was able to do that and why it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense to take. It's so wrong, but to take from a charity. And you have no cameras that picked up any images, no? Unfortunately not. Now, the Gardaí, you know, are investigating and they checked the CCTV um, in the centre itself, but unfortunately, no clues, nothing. I'm like Miss Marple thinking, right, who was there, what could have happened, but that somebody actually went behind the counter Mm. And took the box and went off, you know. Mm. You'd wonder why. Yeah. yeah. It's terrible. It's not good. No. Um, and you've decided that if whoever took it or if anyone knows who took it, mm-hmm. if the money is given back, this will be the end of it. Yeah, we'll give them, absolutely, you know. Maybe it'll be a lesson to be learned, you know. Maybe they need help. That's what we're, like. we're wondering, like, how could somebody come and take from a charity. Mm-hmm. So blatantly. You know, it doesn't. Yeah, blatantly, yeah. It's either very, very bold, very bad, or somebody that's ill, that's not well, you know, to do mm. something like that, yeah. Could be someone, could be someone kind of desperate too, you know, could have yeah, a couple of hungry kids be. at home themselves. Yeah, you, know? you see, that's it. It's what, as you say, PJ, it could be something that's desperate and that needs help. You know, we, like, we help all. You know, we help all. It's, you know, not just, of course, Ukrainians or people from Kazakhstan or Russia or wherever. Like, we'll help everybody. Yeah. You know, of course, we help people with housing here in Ireland. We pull out all stops. You know, we share all our contacts. And so it's not as if we just help people from overseas, of course. Yeah. Not the case at all. So maybe it's somebody that needs help. But to, yeah. 
Yeah. It's sickening. So last Saturday, about 20 to 4, last as you said, your volunteer was distracted talking to another customer and yeah. they just made off with the box, 200 euro mm-hmm. in it. If, if the cash is returned, there will be no more about it. No how, more about it. How are you doing, Fiona? I mean... It's hard going at it? the moment, to be honest. It's very, very difficult, PJ, at the moment, yeah. Yeah. I suppose there's, there's so much of a demand, you know, here with our people in Ireland, you know, the homelessness here. Uh, people say charity begins at home, and we can understand that, but it's hard going at the moment. And we have so many projects, so many projects, mm. you know, here, of course, with the Ukrainians and overseas. Like, we're buying um, a, um, a combi van, and that's one of our projects at the moment. Um, we call it the city. It's called the city with no windows in Kharkiv. So our people from Kharkiv, they've moved out to the, let's say, the adjoining villages. And the infrastructure isn't there. So, like, the roads are dirt tracks. So we've got to buy the four-wheel drive um, van. And thank God we've got the money. But it'll carry people to the hospital appointments. It'll bring the humanitarian aid out to these remote villages where the people were forced to, you know, move to. Can you imagine, you know, waking up and hearing the sirens and Lviv, Lviv in in uh, Western uh, Ukraine, that was like the safe city. That's, that's what people right. would go and say, right. and it's no longer safe. And that's where our base is. You know, that's where our base is. Lviv was at one point, Har- wasn't it, where all the trains were coming in? Exactly. All the trains would come in from Kiev, from Kharkiv, from Odessa, and that's now been bombed as well. And, you know, our partner on the ground there is just so frightened, absolutely terrified. Have you been over yourself much, Fiona? Not since, not since the war. Not since the war. Not mm. since the war broke out. No, no, no. But the plan is to go now. We're buying that vehicle. So we will go. Um, we will go, um, I reckon, about October, PJ. Okay. You're so drive, we'll drive, drive into Lviv. We'll drive into Lviv, well, yeah. I'd love um, to speak to you while you're there. Can we set that please, up? Please, let's do that. Love to do let's that. do, love that, to do that. But in the, mean, the, the, in the meantime, yeah. if anybody knows who took that box or if the person who took that box is listening and, and had maybe please, have a crisis. Yeah. yeah, please call me 087-953-6133. And right. if anybody out there willing to volunteer, we'd be so, so grateful. Or if someone wants to contact Close. us and let, let, let them know how please. you can get your money back, we'll, we'll, exactly. we'll pass. And, and there will be no more to say about it. No more. Right. No more to say. Right, no more Fiona. to say. And thank you, PJ. Thank Please. you, Fiona. Continue your wonderful work at the Greater Chernobyl Cause. And we will talk to her in October when she's out in uh, Lviv. Lviv was, as she said, the safe place. Remember in the very early days of the conflict, talking to Fergal Keane of the BBC, who was basing himself in Lviv, watching the humanitarian situation develop there, and the trains coming in with people, people on them. But Lviv itself was relatively safe. Now it's not. Uh, so thank you to Fiona for that. And if you know who took that money, if you were the person who took that money, there'll be no more said about it. No more said. Just give it back. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Yeah, some of your responses on Tuberty. <laughs> Pat says Kevin Backhurst gets two hundred and fifty thousand a year and a car. What does he bring to RTE audience advertising? The Taoiseach himself is only on two hundred and eleven. I'm not a fan of Tuberty, but I think Gorty are keeping people's focus on him and directing it away from the suits. Michael, I've never watched any of Tuberty's shows or listened to his radio show. However, I feel he's been unfairly and unjustly treated here. It feels like there's a get rid of Tuberty campaign to make him the story rather than the actions of RTE management or the others in the top jobs. 
And with regard to the Late Late Show, maybe the owls uh-huh, are brushing tubs under the carpet. Yeah. He, you, you kind of wonder who's advising him, though. Like, when that statement came out on Wednesday, in his favour, a wise man, I would have thought, I'm not saying he's not a wise man, but a wise man, I would have thought, would keep his gob shut if he's negotiating the return to his workplace. You keep your gob shut. You have to wonder who's advising him. I know if I was in that situation and I was negotiating the return to my job and this statement came out that cleared me of any wrongdoing, if I so much as attempted to open me gob in public about it until I had a contract signed Queen B would disown me. Like, at a delicate situation, at a delicate point in his possible return to the work, to work, he opens his gob. I, I just, if I was his drinking pal, I would say, Tubbs, you gobshite, you talked yourself out of coming back. But then again, you don't know. You know, you don't know. You don't know, do you? Um, would I have liked to see him back? I don't actually care. I don't hear his show. I'm working, you know. And hopefully more of you are listening to me than are listening to him. Or anybody else on instead of him. I don't really care whether he comes back or not. Do you know? Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. There's an Irish culture, says this call, of focusing on the top. We should all remember everyone else in RTE, from cleaners to producers on low money. I don't think they should have sacked him, but I think there should be more mention of the people at the bottom. Is Backhurst going to look after them? Yeah, that's the truth of it all. When all this money story broke, it's the people at the bottom who were hurt. The people at the bottom looked at how much money was flying around in high office and they said, hang on, we don't even have milk for the canteen. We've been told we can't do this and we can't do that and do more with less at the same time, there's money flying around from Renault and money flying around from this fella and that fella and the other fella. It's a very divided organisation. Very hard to know. On Tuberty, there seems to be, just getting a sense, there seems to be quite an amount of sympathy in our little room for Tuberty. He's a human being, says this message. The way this was handled was very poor by RTE management. The amount of trashing of him now on the media after years of him being celebrated, is quite simply revolting. Maeve says, to be fair to Kevin Backhurst, maybe the RTE staff said no, and to try to improve staff morale or avoid industrial action, he he didn't have a choice. And they couldn't take him back without repercussions. Maybe that was happening as well. We don't really, but there seems to be a bit more sympathy for Tuberty's situation this morning than there has been at any other stage throughout the whole thing. That's just the sense I'm getting. Let me know what you think. And we're not going to do anything silly like run a poll here because um, we'd be taken up all morning with you. But I would like just to get your views. Are you sympathetic here? Do your sympathies this morning lie with Ryan Tubridy or with, or do you think Kevin Backhurst was right? Do you think that, do you think Tubridy has been hard done by or do you think Kevin Backhurst was right to put the foot down? 
I'd be interested in in knowing your thoughts at 083 396 96 96. And we, we'd love to get your voice notes as well. So pop them in the WhatsApp. People are busy. People are rushing around. The weather is crap out there. So people don't have time a whole lot of the time to do big long texts or to uh, take big long phone calls. So just pop me a little voice note at 083 396 96 96. Now, believe it or not, back to school is looming. Thanks be to God. It's not in our house anymore. But back to school is looming and it can be very stressful. Sleepless nights, worry, just panic, anxiety. And and that's just the parents, you know. <laughs> that's just the poor misfortune to parents. Una Buckley, good morning. It is a stressful time. I remember it myself and I'm glad we don't go through it anymore. Morning to you. Hi, PJ. Morning. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, it can be a very stressful time. It's it's kind of embedded into the subconscious a little, you know. I, I think kids kind of brushed under the radar and even parents. And then that kind of week before, that 10 days beforehand, it's like, oh, that's actually happening now. It's a mm. bit of a, a realisation and a completely great. I myself found it a very challenging time um, settling back in and, and adjusting to a new pattern, you know, and a new routine. The expense of it will go down a little, I think, this year, for particularly for the parents of primary school kids with so many free books and workbooks now coming through this new scheme that the minister has brought in. But there are other expenses, and expense is, is, causes anxiety. Yes, very much so. I think that that element of, of kind of looking at, you know, what is the best avenue and how to best manage, you know, that household dynamic of it. If, again, there's more even than one child going back to school, it can be a very toll process, you know, and a built up process of uniforms and bags and books. And they all want the latest pencil case and the the newest school bag. So it's it's definitely a, a challenging outlay. There's no doubt about that. A couple of years ago, I spoke to a woman who'd had six or seven children and she came up with an idea. She started them on the routine a week early. Now, she didn't necessarily get them into their uniforms every morning, but she got them up at school time and had them sit around the breakfast table at school time and wasn't taking no for an answer. You could do what you like afterwards, you go back to school or go playing with your friends or whatever. But she got her kids up a few mornings to, to get the routine going again. Yes, it definitely is something that has been proven. It might even be the same person <laughs> um, that suggested it does do. Um, generally, what we we find um, very useful and has been implemented by lots of the parents that we would work with is, you know, even a trial run approach. Um, now, that kind of can look different for every household. Some might do it just the day before and will actually literally put on the uniform and actually go in even like near to the school gate so they can make sure they manage their time and they have everything they need and others as, as you were mentioning PJ might just do the initial morning piece and then kind of you know reevaluate after that but I suppose the feedback element is is the most important aspect as to why you do that so mm-hmm. afterwards how did it go how did everybody feel was it total chaos were things forgotten you know with that kind of follow-up element to then improve upon for when it is actually happening can be very useful for some households. Preparation is key, particularly if you have more than one and you have someone going for the first time. Let's deal with the more than one first. Getting the bags ready, having the bags in the hall 
ready to grab. Let us not be running around looking for tights and pencil cases and shoes at seven o'clock on the first day. Let us not have that happen because it doesn't do anybody's health good. Definitely. I suppose as as organised as possible can ease both the parents' nerves and the students' nerves themselves, having even some form of an organised checklist, either if it's a younger child as well, even in a picture diagram. So they have their pictures or their four or five items and they need to go get those and get those organised. But yes, ideally the night before or even that day of. So generally leaving things until the night before can still build up a lot of kind of undue stress throughout that day and then it's kind of like oh I have to get organised now and then sometimes it's 8, 9 o'clock even before they're getting ready. So as early as possible as to those things that can be organised and then nobody has to think about them anymore. They're already ready they're in the hall as you said or they're somewhere that can be easily then taken out and brought in then on the first day. In terms of that first day, if it's someone's very first day um. It's an emotional day for mom and dad. Do they keep their emotions inside them and have their little cry after Junior has gone into class? Do they, uh, do they have to keep going? It's an emotional time to watch the little one. What do they do? Exactly. Yeah, I suppose there's that concept of, you know, put on a brave face and, you know, try and cut off the exterior of emotions again I suppose PG that's really subjective and it's kind of whatever that parent feels comfortable with in the moment that might not also be possible they may have a want to you know they're driving in the car and thinking okay I'm not going to do that now and then when they get there they may have a totally different scenario so I think it's important that they stay you know as comfortable as they possibly can as well because obviously that you know, affects the child and affects how they feel. So if things go a little bit off centre and, you know, it ends up being totally different than the way the parent wanted it to be, then that's also okay too. It's it's still a learning curve. We can't, you know, perform at the perfect level all yeah. the time. But yes, very much so. I, ideally, obviously, trying to be there to support the child's emotions as best as possible and then the parent going away and, and them trying to, you know, work through their own um, feelings separate yeah. then to the child might be quite useful. In, in, in your experience, Una, in. in your experience, Una, who's more stressed, the parent or the child? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I suppose it really depends on age, maybe, and demographics. Um, we would have it from both sides. Obviously, we work with lots of parents and then we work with their, their students themselves. I think maybe the stress is different is probably the best way of putting it. Um, students at this time when we work with them are apprehensive about settling in and friends that they haven't seen all summer and are they still going to be friends with them and that concept maths chapter that they never really liked are they going to have to do that so there's a little bit of a different stress and then a parent stress might be you know how they'll get on in school overall you know and might have Mm. more of a wider broader picture Um, but I think the stress is evident on on both sides and it's how best they can both manage it together but then also separately as well. Can you make a bit of fun out of it like there are phone apps you can get now where it can turn a to-do list into a game can you make a bit of fun out of it? 
Exactly. I think there's lots of fun that can be taken. I, I do highly recommend as well trying to even do something fun the day before. Um, very useful as a distraction tool. So it's not all kind of doom and gloom and, and getting everything ready, which can be quite difficult actually for most students because they're like, right, that's the end of my holidays and there's all of that kind of stuff. So even some fun activity that can be done that day can can ease that strain, you know, and, and kind of can ease that pressure of, of transitioning back mm. in. Um, and help them through that process. You're doing a free workshop next Monday, Una. Where can people find that? Yeah, so we're doing a free back to school um, online workshop next Monday. It's also recorded for anybody that can't attend. Um, if they want to send us an email, so una at blossomforlife.com or can get access through through our website, so www.blossomforlife.com, mainly providing just a wealth of suggestions and tips for parents and even for the students themselves um, that are settling back in or again, even starting in a new school. We're also delighted to be partnering up um, with an organisation in the UK called succeed with dyslexia so they'll be coming on and, and giving lots of their tips and suggestions as well and um, during that webinar okay blossomforlife.com is the website una buckley thank you 0818 96 96 96 it is a stressful time just be nice to one another have a laugh with it have a laugh with it there's something i always ask the the mammies you know um, when junior is gone off for the first morning into school you've got three and a half, maybe four hours to yourself that you haven't had for a very long time. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? We'll maybe get to that next. I I think I know what I would do. Um, once they're gone off up into the school and teacher has closed the door, they'll all be fine. You go back down, sit into the car. I would go around the corner and get myself a big, dirty Irish breakfast. <laughs> And enjoy it at my leisure without it getting stuck in my throat from rushing around. But that's just me. What would you do? Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. The show that provides the soundtrack to your afternoon in Cork. We actually bought a radio just to listen to you because we were all in the storeroom and we no music and we're listening to you all week. Yeah. Only save one radio station on that radio now, okay? Absolutely. Right. You're the best. You never know what I might have to give away. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it's wall-to-wall superstars. Hello, I'm Luis Capaldi. Hi, this is Calvin Harris. Hey, I'm Miley Cyrus. Come on, let's do the afternoon together. Weekdays from 12. Let me show you what it's all about. Check it out. Simon Murdoch. Midday to 4 p.m. on Cork's 96 FM. Brown Towers have opened their Christmas shop in Cork, Dublin, Limerick and Galway. Personally, I can't wait to get in to have a look at it. John... Good morning. <laughs> I'm delighted. I tell you, you're old enough to remember a film called Network with Peter Finch, where the character he was playing cracked up. He got nervous breakdown inside in the studio, took over the studio, and went live in there, shouting and bawling, and then stuck his head out the window and says, I'm mad as hell. I'm not taking this anymore. I do, well, yeah. I tell, well, I tell you, first of all, it was the ghost. 
mess with down in Caragan. Then she was a chili, making a double act. Then the oldest appeared after it later. But the icing on the cake in was on the 17th of August. I mean, the Christmas shop yeah. was open in the Mount Thomas. Yeah. Where's the problem, John? It's only 129 days away. Uh, for crying out, don't give us a break. We didn't even get through Halloween yet. Let's I hate Halloween, but I love Christmas. Yeah, but I mean, look, you shouldn't remember that I know I'm a few years ahead of you, but the whole thing is that Christmas actually meant something. I mean, it will be nearly a week before Christmas, before people would even think about the shopping, before. No, the 17th of August, the bloody shop is open, Brown Thomas. No, you don't have to go in there. I right? was just going to say that. I don't see anybody outside Brown Thomas with a big net dragging people in. No, 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 but it's just, it looked just the fact like, I mean, it's like the fella saying, I mean, why do you train the mountain? Oh, because it's there. Yeah. Well, it's, we know it's there now, and it's just annoying me that it's there, like, on the 17th. So why is it annoying August. you, John? What, what, what bothers you about it? I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I but mean, why? You know, it, but why? It, 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 it's just too early. It's too early. It, like, there's too much missing. I mean, why don't they start selling Easter eggs, I mean, Christmas Eve, so all together. Well, I mean, they like, start selling Easter eggs on the 3rd of January some days, some years. I know. But, I mean, the, the whole thing is it's just starting way too early. Like, I mean, this, this commercialization, like the whole meaning of Christmas, the whole, like, special time of Christmas that, you know, you only got stuff on Christmas. I mean, all that is bloody will change. Mm. Like, this is way, way, way too early. Mind you, you do know that in many parts of the world, and I even think there might be one in Dublin, there isn't one in Cork yet, but in many parts of the world there are Christmas shops that are open 364 days a year they just close Christmas Day yeah know? there's one I know there's one in New York there was a friend of mine there yeah, yeah. he said it's, there's it's, one in Edinburgh there's uh, one in Vienna it's, it's, yeah yeah well and, look I mean I, I, you were on holidays do you know what my missus spent half a day looking for we were in Arecife the capital of Lanzarote for an afternoon and she spent half the afternoon looking for a Christmas shop to get a Christmas decoration from Lanzarote and you were on your holidays yeah what more fail me for once in my life <laughs> you see John you're talking to someone here who absolutely loves it and I think that the earlier the better well I've no problem with people loving, loving it like you mean like, but I, I know there's the exercise to it where people feel very lonely and we'll talk about all that yeah but yeah, it's, yeah. do you know what we're heading into next week is the 1st of September or the week after next is the 1st of September 1st of autumn you know when autumn will arrive I, I dislike autumn because of what's coming after it, winter. And for me, it's yeah. the only bright spot for six yeah, well, months. Here, here's your brother here because I, I suffer from the season or the defect or like the minute the dark nights come in and over. I but it, yeah. I'm, I'm whacked, you know, for the two months. You know, I, I just have to fight for my, keep my mood up. But like, as, just as a girl to shop, like, I, I think, look, I mean, it's just way too early, man. It really is. Like, I mean, All right, we'll see, yeah. what, we'll see what people think, John. Thanks. Um, the Brown Thomas Christmas shop is open in Cork, Dublin, Limerick, Galway. They have a six foot six nutcracker. Now, my missus collects nutcrackers. She does. She has about, last year, I think I counted 46 of them. The tallest being a metre high. And he stands, he stands in the hall. Captain Nutcracker, we call him. I, I know she would absolutely love to bring home this six foot six giant Nutcracker. Now, for 1,800 quid, I don't think we're going to bother. But it's there. There's a light-up Ferris wheel. But I love this. I think this is great. I love the, Chris, the idea of the Christmas shop being open in, in Brown Thomas, reminding us that it's only 129 days to Christmas. What do you think? 0818 
9696 96. And we had a voice note in, didn't we? We'll do it after the newsletter. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Coach 96 FM. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Fox 96 FM. Would you take one look at that? Would you take a look at that? That is down for the rest of the day and probably for the night as well. And it's going to get heavy and nasty and persistent and horrible but the good news is that hopefully by the middle to end of next week we can look forward to some back to school type weather it looks like there's an improvement on the cards not going back to what it was like in June at least I don't think we are but it certainly looks like we get a bit of better weather for the few days of of back to school which, which would be nice I know they hate it when they gets nice and the kids are going back to school but it is what it is on Tuberty here's an interesting take I hadn't thought of it this way you don't sign your name which is a pity I wish people would do they really think we believe that we're ever taking him back from the moment this started we seem to be getting signals oh his job is in trouble so you're suggesting that the whole talk about contract negotiation and and meetings between himself and Kevin Backer was that all made up for our benefit it's an interesting take on it 0818 96 96 96 the number the text to whatsapp 083 396 96 96 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie Denise agrees with me on Christmas shops I'll come back to her in a little while but first Simon delighted to see that you are a year uh, clean and sober now you've had a tough couple of years and, and you chose to post about it and as you say in your Facebook post you don't always do this kind of thing morning uh, good morning PJ thanks for having me on um, yeah um, I guess the reason why first off I posted um, about because I was keeping it very it was just my family and my close friends knew about what was kind of going on over the past few years and the reason why I chose to post it first off was Almost like because I wanted to just say, right, this is one year, I made it to one year. And also I felt that maybe somebody might read that post, maybe a friend of a friend of a friend might show up on their news feed or something. And they might just say, you know what, maybe I could go get help. You know, I could see a therapist. So that was that was kind of really the main reason why I posted it, that okay. and to celebrate. Well, end. absolutely. And well, you should. But let's let's go back to people who don't know who Simon McCone is. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about the hole in which you found yourself. Um, well, I suppose um, it really kind of I. It was around the time after around the time I started studying uh, in college, because mm. um, that coincided obviously with the coronavirus. I think the coronavirus made everything worse but to rewind um i just found myself and i didn't know what was happening at the time gradually and gradually uh falling into kind of like a dark place mm. that i never twigged as you know being de- being suffering from depression i never felt it was like that i always felt it was something different 
Um, there were times I thought I was kind of, you know, going insane. I was always, there was a lot of paranoia going on. There was a lot of intrusive thoughts, thoughts about things that were just not happening. Well, was this was after you started college, college was it? Uh, no, it was kind of, it was slightly before that, but it intensified during my college, uh, my college years. Okay. Because... I was studying while coronavirus was going on as well. And I think that kind of made things worse. But I think it was something that I always had, even kind of growing up. Um, and it just kind of felt worse and worse. Basically, I was turning myself into my own worst enemy, if you get me. I do, actually. You were looking at the yeah. you were looking at the negative parts of your personality, as we all do exactly. from time to time. And you were thinking they were the dominant parts. Exactly. Everything I was looking at was bad, bad, bad. And everything in the future was bad, bad, bad. Instead of looking at the positives, I always felt that there was a sense, like an ominous cloud almost, over me all the time. And I'd find myself getting into these kind of very, very strange patterns of... Um, and it wasn't until I entered therapy that I actually realised that this is what was happening because it took me over so much. Sure. I wasn't aware of it while it was happening. And I would often find myself in these very weird patterns that let's say if a bus was driving behind me, I would have to get to the next pull before the bus passed me or else something would bad would really happen to my sister or else something horrible would happen to my mother. And I couldn't shake the image out of my mind until I passed it. Mm. And if I didn't make it, it would just intensify and intensify. Your head was painting and, pictures for you. Absolutely. Exactly. And I felt it was just kind of getting worse and worse and worse while also not being fully aware of it. I just thought that was just kind of like what life was, really. Yeah. I wasn't and was this of kind of all going on inside your head, Simon? Had you anybody to talk to about it? Did you, did you talk to anybody about how you were feeling? No, no, because I never really acknowledged it myself almost. I did at some points just have a thought that, you know, I don't like what's kind of happening because it was really, really, really an awful uh, thing I was going through. And I didn't know what was going on at the time, if you get me. So I never felt that I could talk to anybody. Yes. And instead, uh, what happened was, obviously, you know, I started going out and I started going to parties, you know, my college years and stuff. And through that, then I was introduced to class A substances. Mm -hmm. And I felt that the more I drank, I was never like a fan of drink. I'd have one, I'd have another, and then that would lead on to other things. And whatever I would take, I felt like it was ecstasy and cocaine. And mm -hmm. I felt that that would almost slow down this sense of paranoia and let me open up and talk honestly to friends, if you get me. I do. So I'd have to take all these substances just to open up and talk to people. And I felt that slowed down what was going on in my mind. And still, I never really acknowledged it. You were self-medicating. Absolutely. With anything That's you could exactly get your hands on. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and it wasn't something like it was constant. It might have been, you know, here and there. But then as the, as the years went on, it might have been like twice a week kind of a thing. Or I'd go out looking for... For stuff just to basically just calm down these kind of these these thoughts and these these intrusive thoughts that kept on getting worse. Yeah. And then sometimes I would find myself just stuck in these repeated patterns of, you know, the classic things of double checking things to make sure 
like the house, the door, the door is locked. My phone is charging. My alarm is turned on. And I would check them at least like 10 times okay. until it would just, and I just, I just thought this was just like, um, almost like a quirk that I had something quirky, right. but in hindsight, it was actually, I could see what it was. So what happened was, um, a year ago, uh, I, I to put it bluntly. I, took ecstasy and the whole night I went through the whole night partying not even partying I was by myself I met a friend for a drink and I just roamed the streets almost looking for more and I went into my sister's work and she obviously got a massive massive fright and I told her don't don't you know don't tell our mother don't tell our mother and I'm so grateful that she actually did tell my mother because I was terrified that my mother would um would obviously disown me but of course that that wasn't that wasn't what happened. I, I owe so much to my mother because she swiftly booked me in to see a therapist. Right. And, Do you think that you um, brought yourself, this is a, a strange question, do you think that you deliberately, absolutely, when looking back now, absolutely. you deliberately brought yourself into your sister's work to raise an alarm? Absolutely. Because when I went to see my sister, I can remember the conversation vividly. I was telling her... Um, what was my stresses and what was getting me down in my childhood i never knew it but i was after developing a trauma okay that i buried deep in me okay and my therapist told me that i was actually after putting on a mask over a mask okay. over a mask okay. over a mask so the first appointment when, with the therapist then how did that go <laughs> i came in and i told him about everything i was doing and my kind of almost addictive personality. And he told me that I was challenging him to shock him from the minute I came in the door. And then through that, he was able to tweak that I, I had major trust issues. Yeah. And he realized that there was, it was something traumatic that I needed to almost go back to and contextualize. Were you almost challenging said, him to be shocked at you? That was exactly what was happening. And he's sitting there exactly. going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought I had him against the ropes, but in fairness to him. <laughs> They've seen it all, pal. They've seen it all. Seen they have, all. they have. So and you then, you, did you just stop drinking there and then? Just stop taking stuff there and then? Well, when I saw how upset my mother got that day she found out what was happening, I made a pact at myself to never drink again okay. and to never touch anything again. That was something that... I myself said, not even having like the one with family at Christmas. No, yeah, so a, a social point is gone now because for fear of what it might lead to, is that it? Yeah, I and see. I made a very, very strict decision as well to remove myself from my friend group. I, instead of going out to see friends even in the evening, I would just go home instead and read because okay. I felt that I would need a, need a full year to repair myself and get to know what was going on and just admit that whatever happened in the past happened in the past yeah. and it's I need to forge my own path and that was all thanks to my therapist because he did a, um, a technique called EDMR which is sorry eye movement desensitization therapy we've talked about that before it's to do yeah. with OCD which clearly you had yeah. developed yeah and it wasn't until one of my uh, sessions with him one of the most profound sessions ever that I started, he asked me, you know, what are my views on death? And I told him I'm not afraid of death, but I'm terrified of what will happen to my closest friends, my family, if I don't do certain things. And then I started opening up 
unbeknownst to myself about all you know touching things at a certain amount of times um because i always did this by myself i never did it in front of my friends because i was distracted by friends if you uh-huh. get me it I was do. when i was by I myself do. you kept this with, this was your little secret with yourself but was right it was eating you up at the same time Absolutely, and there's even some things as well that I got kind of like a slight fear of like contamination almost. Yeah. As well, there was just some, there was there was irrational fears as well starting to grow. And it wasn't until we worked through numerous sessions of um, the therapy that I started to actually talk about this. I see. And then he guided me down a path where he viewed my, um, my backstory and my childhood and stuff like that. And we found where the trauma was and he helped me contextualize Brilliant. it. And in that session, I felt a weight lift off my shoulders. And have you and made peace on, now with what happened to you? I have. I have. Um, it was, I just realized that, you know, uh, my, 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 my backstory, I'm going into detail on it, um, was um, people just made silly decisions and it never concerned me. And instead, I was carrying the weight. Did it take you long to shake off the drink and shake off the substances? Um, I think it was such a wake-up call, it was almost immediate. Good, good. And how, um, are, you, and how are you now? You're a year, year clear. A year clean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I are you doing the AA or any of those things? No, because even my therapist tweaked this, that he says I was never actually addicted to anything. It was more the use. It was the problem, the underlying problem that I was using to help me to talk to people. I have, yeah. And he said that once we fix the underlying problem, that would fix itself. And it did. I was always skeptical as well of therapy. I can't say this enough. I was so skeptical of therapy, even like for some strange reason, vocally, kind of, I never thought it would work. Yeah. Then I found myself in therapy and it's the most profound thing ever. I'm telling everybody, no matter what state your mental health is in, you should see a therapist. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's so important, isn't it, Simon? It's a lesson you learned and people learn the lesson in the situation and to somebody who may be listening now or has a loved one who's in the position you were in or anything like it, for goodness sake, find someone to talk to. You know now when you walked into your sister's work that night, that was a cry for someone to talk to, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was. And I did notice a pattern where I was kind of opening up to a lot of my friends and kind of, there was a, a cry for help mm. that I didn't know I was actually crying out for. It was that, it was the eight-year-old boy inside me that put on masks as he grew up from that yes. period onwards. That's right. That's that right. Screaming out. That's right. And the messages you were sending out through, shall we call them odd behaviours, the messages yeah. you were sending out were, would someone please look at me because I'm all broken inside and I don't know how to say it. Absolutely, that was it. And the, the the OCD quirks, as I like to call them, yeah. but the compulsions and stuff like that, what that was was it was almost like a battle to try have control yes. over my life, to control certain aspects, you know, by, but there were aspects that I just made up in my head, essentially. I know, I know. but, but a, year, yeah. a, year, a year on, a year on, it was traumatic, but, but things are working out. Your message, Simon, before I let you go, your message to anybody who's in difficulty or knows somebody in difficulty or suspects that someone they love or care about might be in difficulty. What's that message? Um, that there is actually, there is always somebody out there to help. Mm. And no matter how much you build it up in your head about um, that this might be a stressful thing to go through, it's not. 
these people are here to help you and it can be it, it can be the most profound amazing thing mm. when you do find help and you do find what the root cause yeah you know certain addictions or certain problems are and it, it is totally life-changing and i never thought i'd be a person to actually say those words yeah and you won't shock them and they won't laugh at you and you're not telling them no. that they haven't heard before yeah yeah that must be a great feeling when you went into the therapist and you, like you said, you were, you were trying to shock the therapist. You were trying yeah. to surprise the therapist. And I can just see his face, I don't know who he is, the sky above him, was sitting there looking at him going, yeah. yeah. That's exactly it. He was just going, mm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> As if to say, bring it on, like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and re- even releasing that across a table must have been, must have been something special for you. It was. There was a lot of stuff that I could finally get off my chest yeah. and I could finally be the real me as opposed to a, a persona that I had to put up all these different masks for yeah. all my life. I could, the real Simon could come out. And that was a huge, that was and a huge the real moment. Simon has, the real Simon has been there ever since I well, had that moment, that profound moment in therapy. He was, he was always there. He was just afraid to come out and here he's yeah. back. And great to talk to you, Simon. I wish you well in your continuing recovery and the advice to anyone who finds themselves in a difficult situation like Simon did talk to somebody and with regard to therapy I, I, I know someone who was in therapy and again one of these people who'd never believed that therapy would work for them that a therapist would listen to their story and go Arab will you go away now and cop it's a fan. no therapist will ever say that you can't shock them. You can't surprise them. They've heard it all. All of it. Um, and, and that's the big lesson that people learn on their first trip into therapy. Simon, thank you and the best of luck. 0818 96 96 96. Back for a second to Tubridy and what happened with Tubridy yesterday and overnight. Uh, the contract was there on the table, almost ready to be signed. It was being drawn up and written up and almost ready to be signed. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't. And he won't be coming back now. Carol sent us uh, a WhatsApp. Morning, PJ. Well, with Ryan Tobley, you know, I wouldn't be too pushed if he got his job back on us. But RTE, you forget about it. I will not be paying my TV license at all this year. There you go. And I think, I do think a lot of people feel that way regardless of what's happened with Tuberty. Thanks, Carl. 0818 96 96 96. Cecilia was listening to me talking about back to school earlier with uh, Una. We will podcast that later. She said she missed the name of the website for the workshop and for the tips on going back to school. There's also a workshop on Monday. Yeah, blossomforlife.com. Blossom, the number four, life.com. Tip, contact, and just send them an email and they'll uh, get you into the the workshop next week and it'll be recorded so you can watch it back you don't have to watch it live thanks Cecilia for that 0818 96 96 96 saying we're back to school I was asking what you'll do and we'll go into this more when it when the first day comes in a couple of weeks time but what'll you do when the smallies have gone off for the very first morning I still remember the way my mom cried her eyes out on my first day you don't give your name which is a pity Una is so right to make it fun. I plan on making good memories for my little one. Let's be bright and happy about their next chapter. 0818 96 96 96. John was on with me before 10. John is outraged. John is. Now, John outrage is fairly easy, to be fair. But John is outraged 
about the fact that the Brown Thomas Christmas shop opened yesterday on the 17th of August. And I was saying to him, look, John, it's only 129 days to Christmas. Why not? And they have, in the Brown Thomas shop, one of the things they have is this big six-foot, six-inch nutcracker. It'll cost you a month's wages, but he's there. Veronica says, I have a huge nutcracker. He's six foot tall and lives in the sitting room all year long. He's only handsome. I love him to bits. <laughs> yeah, I told you, my missus, had, we've, I think last year when I was putting them away after Christmas, I counted 44 or 45 of them, including a fellow who's a, who's a metre tall. And I was talking to John about Christmas shops. We don't have an actual full-time Christmas shop in Cork. I don't know whether there's one in Dublin. I think there's one in the north. My missus went looking for one in Lanzarote on the holidays and couldn't find one. Denise, where did you find one? Morning. Good morning, PJ. I was in Croatia and I went to Dubrovnik. Yeah. And down one of the streets, in the middle of all the tourist shops, there was this Santa Claus standing outside. I actually sent you a picture of it. And it actually counted down the days to Christmas. At the time, it was 200 days to Christmas. I see him, yeah. <laughs> there in the and middle I, of the summer heat. Yeah, and I went in and I collect fridge magnets, but I also collect baubles if I'm away. Yeah. I have been to a couple of Christmas markets, so I said, I have to go in. And there was a couple of ladies down the back and they were actually making the stuff. Ah, really? Yeah, some of it was handmade and some of it wasn't. Mm. So I picked up a couple of baubles. One had the name Croatia on it. Isn't that lovely? I mean, I thought, I, I, I mean, I was laughing going in, but at the same time I said, I have to. And had I you ever seen a Christmas shop before? No, this is the first time other than going to Brown Thomas now, yeah. but I mean, yeah. all, this is an all-year-round shop. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I really do I, think it's fabulous. I think it's great as well. And, and then, people go on holidays and they can pick up stuff. Yeah. Obviously, I couldn't pick up anything big because I only had a small suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. And you wouldn't want to be looking for... Then, and there he is. He's kind of a skinny Santa, isn't he? A bit skinny. He is, yeah. Yeah, two, and it was only 200 days until Christmas. It's now only uh, 100 and, 129. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I presume they change it every day. Oh, yeah. It's like a chalkboard, a little chalkboard. That's right. We found one in Edinburgh, down one of the side streets in, in Edinburgh. And I think there's also one in Palma, down a little oh, narrow street. I've, never, I've been in Palma, no, and I didn't see one down there, but yeah. you could be right. <laughs> yeah, well, down, you know, well, if you've been to Palma, you know what I'm talking about. Not so much the big thoroughfares, but you know when you get down into the little windy alleys? Yeah, it was the same now in Dubrovnik. It was like a little windy alley, but it still had a load of tourist shops down there. Brilliant. All right. And what did you get? I got a little bobble which says um, Croatia on it because I like to have, because I already have one from Berlin because I've been to the couple of the Christmas markets in Hungary and yeah. Munich. But um, I bought a couple of small other things as well, but not nothing much. We have a shovel. A shovel? A shovel. Her, herself went off with the choir she was singing in a few years ago. She went off to Vienna. That is a good few years ago now. She went off to Vienna uh, in, I think, late November. And the Christmas markets were over. And she managed to carry, I don't know how she did it, she managed to carry a, a two and a half foot shovel all the, wow. way, all the way home. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, have, you, have, you, have you nutcrackers, Denise? No. Um, I've, we moved in here only four years ago. It's a council bungalow and I haven't started co- collecting... Big stuff, yes. Mm. 
Yeah. Just got the Christmas tree and the baubles and stuff like that. Absolutely. Well, uh, delighted, delighted with your call. And you know the way I do all these days, Richard is always laughing. I can always tell you how, how long it is to the days of anything. Like, the first Christmas tree in, in Coogan Towers will be going up in 99, day, 99 days' time. Right, yeah, that would be about right. It'll, about it'll be upon us before we know it, girl. December, be, I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder, will they have a toy show this year? No one has said anything because it oh, would that's be a good question. Yeah, you know, would, will there be a toy show? Will Paddy Keelty do a toy show? Because it would be he's the nice. Hmm? He said actually some time ago that he's not. Uh, he hasn't been given a contract for the toy show. Mm, we'll see how it is. I, I, I think they've done away with the owl. God, they have to keep the toy show. If they do away with the toy show, oh no, the toy show has to be I done. Mean, I mean, even, people, adults even sit down and have absolutely. parties for that. Even even Pat Kenny did a toy show. <laughs> and he wouldn't exactly the, be the most. Uh, the, no, no, he, he, would, he no. wouldn't. Be, you know, yeah, he did it. He did it okay. He actually but did. I mean, he actually did do it. He was brilliant at it. Yeah, I don't, that's the thing. That's the thing. I'll miss it. I, I'll yeah. miss. Um, look, I, I wouldn't be a big late late show watcher of late. I don't think Night anybody Night. is right. No. But like that, I, I haven't missed a toy show in years, and I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I will miss him on the toy show. Definitely yeah. for sure. Definitely for sure. Well, unless they get somebody really good, and hopefully they won't cut it completely. Absolutely. All right, listen. Good, good talking to you, Denise. Thanks with your Dubrovnik, Croatia Christmas decorations. And there he is. There's a picture of your man. Uh, there's the thing. She's still there, Denise. You're still there. Yeah. Would you do a Halloween tree? Some people do. I haven't, but I have a couple of Halloween things that I put outside the door. One is a scary uh, skull head, which had a light on it. I yeah. did have a bigger thing before, but it kind of disintegrated. <laughs> and I kind of put, uh, sometimes I put, change the bulbs on the outside lights to orange. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I don't, uh, I like to do them outside for Halloween. But unfortunately, I'm up a kind of a, lay, a footpath and nobody knows we're there kind of thing. So mm. we don't get any visitors. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 74 days to Halloween. Just Oh, just right. Okay. Now. Just so that I know. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah. And it's this people kind of start their Christmas shopping then come Halloween. Yeah, 74 days to Halloween. Richard Richard loves how I do this. He says, You always seem to have the. I have this an app. There's a great app called Days Until. So 74 days to Halloween. Okay. It's 72 days, by the way, until the clocks go back. I know. I know. It's 129 days to Christmas. And it's 225 days for the clocks to go forward again. Just, I'm just doing it. It's 212 to St. Patrick's Day, 21 days to the Rugby World Cup. <laughs> Christmas in August. I love it. And I won't be talked down from that, from that particular perch. On Simon McKeown, excellent interview with Simon. Well done, PJ. Well done, especially to Simon. Thank you for that. Yeah, Simon, um, we will podcast Simon's interview later today. 0818 96 96 96. There's a suggestion. We've had more than one suggestion for someone to do the toy show. Not me. By the way. No, not me. Someone else. I'll tell you in a minute. Uh, when was the last time you were on a pub crawl? I, I don't wish to be seen here as, or to be accused here of promoting drink. I'm not. But when was the last time you were on a pub crawl? Uh, and who did you meet when you were on it? Read this fabulous list of the kind of people who you meet on a typical pub crawl. They're the loved-up couple. You know, they're slurping 
their drinks and all goo-eyed at one another. They make you sick. Uh, the awkward, shy one. Do you know? The Aufla. The Aufla who was there when they built the pub and wants to talk to everybody. Um, the party animal who just wants to get on to the next pub as fast as possible. Um, and, and, and the I worked in a pub one. There's always one fellow who worked in a pub. And then there's the solo traveller who's there on his own and, and tends to just fall into the group and into the conversation. Um, Polo Canila, that kind of fits you really, travel writer Polo Canila. You, <laughs> you, you, you're writing about this both in the Indo and in the National Geographic. Um, you started yours in the castle on South Main Street and you described it beautifully like the lovely pub it is. Good morning. How are you doing? This is a nice chat to be having on a Friday. Isn't it? I and a dirty, <laughs> filthy Friday at that, when a high stool and a roaring fire wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be unwelcome. And you know what? I can get you off the hook here for the alcohol thing because the um, non-alcoholic cocktails, uh, the range of sort of juices and, and craft uh, soft drinks that you can get in this country at the moment is brilliant and mm. improving all the time. So you don't have to have an alcoholic drink. But I did. And like when I, I did this walk around Cork, um, and needless to say, I feel like I'm being set up to be shot down here because no matter what pubs you pick out of 100 pubs, you're always going to miss one out that's a, a listener's favourite, but I popped into O'Donovan's, um, uh, the Castle Inn on South Main Street, as you said, and uh, just, it was a similar day that you're describing, and it, it's, it's the same where I'm speaking to you from here, and it was dark, and it was wet, and it was dreary, but the, when you kind of step inside, and the, the, the Pint of Murphy's went on, it already felt like a kind of a warm hug. Really old school, like a kind of, the best way I would describe it is like a country pub in, in the city, mm. and I just love that those places still survive despite all the change that's happening in Cork. Yeah, they're a rarity now to find a good old-fashioned, like you said, country pub in the middle of the city and, and the castle. Would you consider it a starting point if one was doing a few pubs or the kind of place you'd like to end the evening in? How many people live in Cork? Would would there be what? Are we over a hundred thousand? Oh, well there over, well over. Yeah. There's that. Well, there's that number of answers to your question, because you you I I just loved starting it off there because it was kind of people were just getting into the groove and asking each other how were their day and there was still a spot in the snoke and there was still you know room to sta- to, to set yourself up by the fire and that um, but I can I, I know what you mean as well coming in once the, it's crowded and everybody is kind of in, in third or fourth gear is great as well but but I, so I, I, I like kind of starting off in a place like that and then I moved because I wanted to get a fancy drink in because there's a lot of fanciness has been introduced into Cork over the years. So you went to it. Cask. I went to Cask. I had on, you know, I was. It was a toss up between so the rooftop bars that are new to the city, like in the Montanati and like um, and Sophie's and that. And I know the Shelburne is another great bar across the road there in the Victorian Quarter. But I I went into Cask, and um, I had had several recommendations for it, and I've been there a couple of times over the years but I just love how kind of ultra local 
they go with with the drinks. Um, that that you're not go, you're not just going to order a G and T in in there. You know, you can ask what you want, and they make one up for you. Or they have they change the list every couple of weeks, as you, every twelve weeks, I think it is, and they'll have they'll have titles like um, the Jammy Git. Uh, or the glass curtain, which is what I ordered, and that was Jemson Black Barrel whiskey with a blackberry and a huge cube of ice, a low ball kind of a drink. And I knew I was going to spend twelve or thirteen quid on it, but just kind of sitting in that atmosphere brought out a whole other side of the the city for me. Yeah. And you can ask them in there. You write in the piece that you can ask them what they think you should have. And I like that because so often if I go out for. A, a coffee or a pint I will order the same thing I'll just sit down and go pint Guinness or Murphy's if it's in Cork or a, you know a, an Americano or a flat white whatever it is but I, I challenged myself and sat up at the stool and said would you re- recommend a co- cocktail and they really loved it they kind of responded to it and said oh yes nice like what kind of stuff do you like and what kind of stuff do you not like and I was able to say well I do I, I like uh, whiskey but I really don't like it to be too full on or you know y- you might go for a gin but you'd only have one that kind of thing and then they talk you through it. Would you like it a long drink or a short drink in a martini glass? And some of the ingredients. There's another drink, PJ, called the Pure Maldi. I don't know if it's still on. Pure Maldi. Blackwater vodka from the county, cashel blue cheese distillate, and hive mind honey from Myrtle. Hang on, cheese in a glass? A distillation. So they're not putting the cheese in. It's kind of like, let's call it like an essence or a little whiff of it. So you, you know, it's, obviously blue cheese isn't for everyone. I'm the no. only one in my house that eats it. But combined, what I love is just the creativity there. Not just that, but you're not going to get that co- that cocktail in any other bar oh, or any yeah. other city or any other country in the world. And I guess that's something I'm always looking out for when yeah. I travel is sort of something that will tell a story like that. Yeah. I won't, if you're in New York, you know, you, well, I wouldn't order a Guinness. I'd be looking for what is real. What is the locals lo- yeah. telling a and story And the, char- the characters you meet, I love the line where you, and come back to the, to the castle and we may develop the characters a bit. You, you said that the talk at the counter and you just fell into it was hurling gas bills, taxis and technology. I think Paul, that in 2023, that gorgeous, free-flowing come on in if you're sitting here, conversation is to be treasured, because there's not enough of it around. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and it's nice to be able to walk in as a solo traveller and get involved in that. And there's a there's a hundred different ways to visit a pub with buddies with with your partner, you know, on a date, uh, have lunch with the kids, whatever it may be. But I just love that sense of a kind of a a little living room or a for the city that you can pop into. And there was a fella beside me reading the paper, and you know. 20 minutes later he had the glasses off and down on the paper and was joining in in the chat and then he could drift out and someone could step out and do a call and come back in and join us and I I mentioned another pub you'll know this one it's very unique to Cork it's the High B which Ah, feels like kind of the lounge of a hotel that has fallen away around it over the years. Uh, I don't know what the exact origin story of the High B is but that place I made the cardinal sin the Cork cardinal sin of taking out my phone oh no you didn't Paul <laughs> oh no you didn't I thought when I saw the sign that it was like 
uh, do you know a sign like I don't know cash only or toilets no. downstairs? Uh, I thought it was kind of a a hopeful sign, no, no, but no, I quickly no. learned otherwise. No. Now, thankfully, I wasn't barred, but I've since learned that that can even be a badge of honour in Cork. Oh, yeah. oh listen, you, you, you haven't you, you've not become an honorary Corkonian yet, Paul, until you get yourself barred from the highway. <laughs> <laughs> we've all managed. we've all managed. It's, so, did did you have a favourite? Because I'm going to ask people uh, their their favourite pub to start or end a pub crawl. W- would you have a favourite out of the ones you visited while you were here? No, I won't say a favourite because I there's such difference. And 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 the way I get off the hook, uh, one of the questions I'm always asked as a travel writer is, "What's your favourite place to go?" And I always give the cheesy answer that it's the next one because <laughs> I just love I love will take if I was going to Cork tonight or going out in. Um, uh, and, and taking to Twitter or, or asking friends what's the place to go and they'll always say somewhere that you've never been and I've a list long as my arm I have the Mutton Lane on the list to go for a pint the next time I went to the Franciscan Well uh, for a pizza and a pint of their own hazy IPA and I loved it and yeah. that's a completely different experience totally different Cask experience Lane. and it's completely different to Cask so it's almost like kind of Saying which movie would would get the Oscar? They're so they're so different. <laughs> it's true. I, and that's what true. I like about to bring you full circle. I suppose back great. to the crawl. Listen, great to see you writing for the National Geographic as well, one of the world's most respected uh, international magazines. Great to see that, Paul. Great to see that. Thank you. I Cheers. appreciate that. Cheers, travel writer, Paul O'Connell. Uh, writes in the Independent and in National Geographic. And this is a lovely article to go into National Geographic about our wonderful city and our wonderful pubs. What? So. To the floor. To the floor this Friday. Where would you go to start a pub crawl? Where would you go to start a pub crawl? Not saying we're not endorsing pub crawls. Where would you go to start a pub crawl? Or if you were on a pub crawl, where would you like to finish that pub crawl? Although by the way he describes the castle in... I ain't going nowhere else. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. Fox 96FM. Hours to Protect. Brought to you by Cork's 96FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. This week on Ours to Protect, we hear from a lifelong campaigner who explains how good management of our seas is one of the most powerful tools Ireland has in fighting climate change. Marine biologist Jack O'Donovan Traw from Clonakilty explains where his love for the sea comes from. In West Cork, it's hard not to have a connection to the sea. Like we were uh, born and reared on the main street there in, in Clonakilty, but you know we, we spent all our, our spare time either out in the Red Strand or down at in Chidani or places like that. So it really we just developed from that age. And I went on to university then to study uh, zoology and botany, but focusing really on marine uh, plants and animal sciences. After university, Jack started doing various different types of research, instilling the love he has for the oceans and seas. In my summers, I'd, I'd be kind of working all during the year, and I'd go off researching then in the summer on internships, researching everything from sea turtles in Greece to humpback whales and killer whales in British Columbia and the west coast of Canada and would spend months on end out in remote places researching kind of marine life. And from there, being out in some of the wildest parts of the world, in the northwest of Canada, there's places where only indigenous people really have have ever gone. And I was privileged enough to be brought to those places by my friends from the indigenous villages in the area 
And what shocked me was we were researching these magnificent creatures like humpback whales that were swimming two feet from the shore with their calves and killer whales who came in in their family groups to, to fish in their territorial waters. And we were visiting these places, but what I was shocked by was when we visit these beaches, and there's beaches on these islands, right? There's only wolves and bears living on these islands. And you would be three foot deep in microplastics. You know, the place would be absolutely trashed by kind of, I suppose, the hand of human beings when human beings really had never even been to these places except for the local indigenous people. So at that stage, I realized I kind of moved out of research and decided to go into the communications and campaigning side of it because I realized we have to change the ways we're behaving at home to benefit biodiversity on a, on a global scale. Jack is the communication officer at Fair Seas, a coalition of Ireland's leading ENGOs and environmental networks. He hopes to bring the message of ocean protection to a wide audience in an engaging and impactful way. We're campaigning at the government to create these protected areas, which are basically the marine protected areas are like national parks but in the sea. And the Irish government has committed uh, under international obligations to protect 30% of Irish waters with these marine protected areas by 2030. So far, they are very far behind on their targets. They said they'd have 10% protected by 2020. However, in 2020, the government had only protected 2%. And when I say protected, they were protected on paper only. So there was no management plans, there was no funding, there was no oversight. You know, I've met harbour masters in West Cork who don't even know where the boundaries to these special areas of conservation, these SACs, are. You know, so it's quite worrying to see the lack of progress. So we started to really put the pressure on the government to take this issue seriously, because when it comes to climate change, the ocean really is our greatest ally. And in Ireland, we have an ocean territory out to sea. So the Irish Exclusive Economic Zone, um, so that's the waters we have jurisdiction over out to sea, is seven times larger than the island of Ireland. So that is a phenomenal amount of responsibility we have to look after the ocean and being an island, so much of our life depends on the ocean, even from the fact that 50% at least of the oxygen that we breathe is generated by the ocean and um, should be cause enough for us to do all we can to protect it, especially in the face of climate change and warming oceans and biodiversity loss. Fair Seas has published the interim results of its first ocean literacy survey, which shows that 45% of people are concerned about the health of our marine environment. The study was launched this summer to find out how well people in Ireland know the water around us and how they use them. More than 90% of people support the creation of marine protected areas. So what needs to happen now to bring this to reality? We need biodiversity to recover. It's not enough today to say that we need to protect biodiversity because biodiversity is at such low levels and most of our populations are declining that we need to give them a chance to actually recover before we can say we're going to protect them. They need to actually, you know, um, we need to restore populations. And so we really, we really need to make sure that the governments take this seriously and that they really enact this legislation as quickly as possible because, you know, we have no time to lose when it comes to climate change and 2030 is not a long way away. Um, so we're just really calling that they can enact strong legislation that will give us good oversight, good management and good funding to allow these areas to be properly managed so biodiversity can recover and society can get the maximum amount of benefits from the recovery of biodiversity possible. To learn more about the importance of our oceans, visit Fair Seas online or check the show notes of this episode. Hours to Protect, brought to you by Cork's 96FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. The minds are live. Oh, hello.
Join the conversation. On such a crap day, and if I'm listening correctly to Barry, it's going to get worse, a lot worse, before it gets better. I think it was a good conversation to start with Polo Canela about the best pub to start a pub crawl because it is definitely a day for the highest stool. And if you even wanted to light the fire, you could light the fire, even though it is only August. Um, Frank in Nocknahini says, The Rising Suns for Pint and Pizza. Or the meat and cheese board. Oh, there's posh, Frank. The meat and cheese board. Would you have that now with a pint of stout? Or what would you have it with? Because to me, cheese has to be had with wine. You know, it's wine and cheese. Has to be. Not too sure I'd fancy pints and cheese. (laughs) Walk around any of the pubs in town, but finished off up in Jack Ford's, the Shandon Arms. And you have all the characters you need. Happy days, says another unsigned message. Louise, the Long Valley, my favourite bar in Cork. Best staff, best customers, best sandwiches in town. Go there regularly. And a damn fine pint as well, Louise. I will give you that. A bloody fine pint in the Long Valley anytime I've ever been in there. Aoife, Casey's in Clonakilty for sure. Then Deborah's. In fact, any pub in Clonakilty. John says, start in Animax on the Bandon Road. Finish in Fords at the bottom of Barrick Street that's 13 pubs that's a pub crawl do it every Christmas and then link in with all and with your other topic <laughs> the Christmas yeah I, I'm not too sure now that the old body here would, stem, would stand up to 13 pints at Christmas or even 12 wouldn't unless I was having water and at least every second one do you know what I mean it just wouldn't stand or non-alcoholic beer because there's no way but yeah that's a legendary pub crawl starting at any max or maybe starting in Sissy Young's and working your way down to Fords at the bottom of the hill uh, the, the 12 or 13 pubs of, of Christmas has to be Coonahens says Declan on a winter's day or you'd make an excuse for a day like look out at that God almighty Coonahens on a winter's day one of the few city bars that still has a real fire in the winter yeah oh I, I don't even want to look behind me out the window now at this stage it's so depressing it really is so depressing uh, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. The streetlights on the N40 Bishopstown Balancholic and the N22 Balancholic ovens have purposely been turned off by tra- Transport Infrastructure Ireland as part of a new policy. I'll take your word for it. And does this make our roads more dangerous at night at a time of increasing fatalities? When I inquired, I was told the lights you mentioned have been switched off intentionally to align with current lighting standards. The policy is being applied across Ireland on the motorway network to reduce energy use without reducing road safety. I personally don't agree that it doesn't compromise safety. What do your listeners think? There's an interesting one. So this is the the Bishopstown to Ballancolic Road, N40, and then the N22 between Ballancolic and Ovens, the bypass, I assume. That those traffic, those those streetlights have been turned off. I and to be done as part of an energy-saving measure. I'm not sure I'd like that idea at all. You would think that 
brightly lit roads are part of any modern society. Brightly lit. And light them up with LED. And LED is dirt cheap, like. To run, I mean. Not to put up. Because they're turning off traffic lights on roads. And this is what this caller says, or this message says, that they checked with transport infrastructure and they're now just starting to turn off the, ro- the lights on main roads to save energy. Yeah, a lot of love in the room for Simon McKeown. Thank you for talking to that young man. Great to hear stories on mental health, positive stories on mental health. So many are struggling in this, our brave new world. Christmas in August, Mike says, Mike the farmer, you're on there about Christmas. Some people are more organised than Brown Thomas. They've been booking Santa visits since March. I heard that. Couldn't believe it. Heard it a few weeks ago that people are actually now starting to book the Santa visit, book the trip to Santa. They, they, they had booked them in June, July. Like that's that there's been organised and there's been organised. 0818 96 96 96. One thing that is being organised for tomorrow week, the 26th of August, is the North Main Street Carnival. It's a big event. The street will be closed. Fancy lights went up last Christmas will be in full swing. There'll be music, there'll be food, there'll be craft, there'll be performers, street performers, and just a party for the people of North Main Street and the surrounding areas. It's all put together by George Patterson, uh, he of Roaring Forties fame, who has been living in the area now for quite a while. And George, you've fallen completely in love with it and you have a huge festival planned. You've a lot going on on tomorrow week. Morning. Good morning. Um, uh, We've got a lot going on. It starts at 12 o'clock. We're closing the roads from um, 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 at night. We're starting all the festivities at 12, so it's from 12 till 6. We, we called it a carnival because um, I got um, a fire breather. And I think as soon as you've got a fire breather, then you've got a carnival. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got Vikings marauding the street, um, uh, doing their shows, uh, um, reliving what it might have been like a long, long while ago down there. And we have Rumley's The Farm. We've got him down where Skiddy's Castle once stood. Okay. We've got the music at the other end of the street, um, right by um, Fast Owls and The Raven. So he's got four bands playing. I've got us, we're going to play, of course. There's a funk band and um, there's Clan Iran, who are amazing. Clan Iran. Like a trad yeah. band. Yeah. Clan Iran, sorry. Yeah. Yes, right. Um, they're, they're amazing. We've got Fiona Kennedy. Which is great. George, we're just chatting here on the programme during the week about things around town, and one of them would be graffiti. Long chat with Katrina Devereaux about the extent of graffiti. Yeah, I was listening to that, yeah. It, yeah. It's, a, it's a problem it's everywhere. It is a problem, yeah. We do have, there is a problem here. I think they see themselves as artists. Uh, some of them, you know, the Banksy thing, but then none of them are anywhere near as poignant as Banksy is. Mm. But that I think I think some of them think they're decorating, yeah. But then you get the others that just scrawl their signature, whatever it is. Mm. Um, they're young people, you know. They're going to have a different idea of the future, and and some of them probably think that you know this is just fun. It's just something that they think is is going to make them known on social media. Something they can something they can hang on to and um, make themselves sort of famous in their own lunchtime. But, I mean, they, they, they do some here on hoardings, and I think the council has employed them to do it. 
uh, just to yeah. like brighten up the hoardings yeah. of something. There's a fine line, isn't there, there, between art and, as we were saying to Katrina, there's a fine line between art and vandalism. Mm. Yeah, it, well, it, I, most of it is vandalism, mm. yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Do you think the and council should be helping people, helping the businesses in particular, to clean it up and, and keep the street clean and maybe bef before the paints had time to dry on these tags to get them cleaned off? I think the council should be more responsible for them than they are. I know that the uh, uh, the city planner, John Hayes, cares about it. For, for the festival, for instance, like you know, he's saying about maybe we'll you know we'll paint all over that, we'll yeah. get that painted all over, so it's just one colour, you know. And and really, and like and he knows in his heart of hearts that like really that should be done everywhere hmm. that this happens because. We all know that the city centre is turning into a drinkery and an eatery, uh, and the shopping part of it is becoming fairly minimal. Yeah. And, you know, its attendance is lower, and because of what's going on, and because you come in and it does look like the side of an old American train in a, in a <laughs> 1980s movie. <laughs> no? You mentioned the eating and drinking, George, and it's a good culture to have, to have a city where people come in to eat and drink. But there is, an, so. living there in the city centre and working as you do in the community, there's a level of antisocial behaviour and, and it's always worrying. Uh, violence and fighting, I don't see a lot of it. Loudness. Uh, we live in Grattan Street. Hmm. Uh, there's some there's some voluminous people out there who would be calling for their loved ones in Edel House, or of course we have Mercy Hospital around the corner, and that has attracted some violence over the past year. The violence in town, and there are fights that go on in town, and they are quite as they are as shocking to us who live here in and amongst it all as anybody looking in from the outside. Um, but the main thing is um, the drug addicts. Yeah. It's a very sore thing to see. We, we have this word for them uh, that I, I, I needn't say, but like you can see the poor people that are affected by this. And, and what happens is in this area, they would find their drug dealer down the, one of the darker alleyways at night or in the morning, and they would take the drug, they would inject the drug, and they would then fall asleep in someone's doorway. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, when the door is opened, it could be the kids coming out to go to school. You know, yeah. so then they're confronted with that, and that's what becomes the serious aspect of it. And the guard come along, they, what can they do about it themselves other than like move the people on? Yeah. You know, we'd all we'd all love for there to be some rule in place or law in place where they're taken and they're put into they're put into a jail and they're left there to get better to recoup themselves and come out changed people. But of course, if you were to start putting those sort of laws onto society, then we'd all end up in jail, but this yeah, or the other. True. You, you've <laughs> you often know? mentioned before in the past, George, that you know th these are sick people. They're not bad people. They're people they're who are ill. They're not bad people, no. They're yeah. sick people. Yeah. They are. And, and some of them, it stays with them their whole life. It's sad. It's, it's all over sad. our city, not just in, in your part. It, it is all over our city. Oh, it is, yeah. yeah. And the guards yeah. try their best, but they, there's not enough of them, is there? There's not, no. I think we have, I think we have around about, in the city centre, I think we only have about six or seven guards on any time, and that's between walking and on bikes. And outside that, if anything happens, then the cars would come in and they sort of patrol now and again. But on 
the on the on the ground it's quite minimum yeah um there was a there was talk of an injection center uh, yes if uh, and there were uh, there was talk that it was going to be either in shandon or here somewhere safe but for them I, to go yeah i i spoke to um i spoke to the chief superintendent about when they went to lisbon to have a look at the SIF over there, supervised injection facility. Hmm. Um, he was telling me they would only have two here. And one of the things he said to me, which I thought was very, very important, was he can't see that somebody will be able to, would come from um, McCurtain Street you know, to come to the hospital or to Shandon um, to supervise while he injects it. Plus, it would be no safe place if their dealers were with them then yeah. those dealers would be arrested. Yeah, it's multi-layered and it's complex and it's and it's a problem. Very. But I think the people who live around there are really happy to live there. Extremely. Uh, despite the goings-on and the um, uh, and and any trouble there might be, you know, um, and some of it is like you know very watchable uh, things that things that you see around the town. Despite everything, the community is tight. Hmm. Uh, and it is wonderful living here. Uh, we absolutely wouldn't live anywhere else. Yeah. You've been uh, there a uh, while uh, now, you and Orla. Yeah, um, I, I've been here for yeah, 20 years. Um, we wanted to move near the coast for a little while, but we think that was just a fairy tale, fairy <laughs> dreams. We thought about it, and here is the place. Uh, the people around us, um, the community centre, the traders, everything about Cork City Centre is fabulous, right. which is why I did my um, master's thesis on the middle parish and the city centre. To come back to where we started, your yeah. carnival is on Saturday, 26th of August, and everybody's gearing up and looking forward to it. I'm probably going to put the bunting up uh, maybe this weekend. We're going to go all the way down North Main Street and also and down to Washington Street. So that's part of South Main Street. Um, if I've got enough bunting left, I've got 360 feet of it. If I've got enough bunting left, then I'm going to put it down um, uh, Castle Street as well. Excellent. Which would be nice. It's going to be a real buzz and a really enjoyable day. And I wish you well with it. And George, we'll bump into each other around the place over the weeks and months to come. Good to talk to you, fella. I look forward to it. Lovely talking to you too. Thank you. Cheers, George. And my love to Orla. And, and give Trevor a, a, an old tickle for me, will you? Trevor the dog. That's the... George. Uh, listen, it's not so much now just a warning. It is officially Storm. Storm Betty. Betty. Storm Betty is about to hit us with fury this afternoon um, heavy rain wild winds take in the garden furniture would you or tie it down because it'll start moving across the yard on you isn't it ridiculous like utterly ridiculous take down the umbrella because that'll end up in the next parish Storm Betty is on her way bad cess to her anyway oh, oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Uh, I just heard George talking about graffiti and you were talking about it yesterday. Do you realise that City Council is hitting people who are struggling to keep the doors open if they don't remove graffiti on their premises? This can happen repeatedly. Yeah, there's an idea from Vancouver which we were discussing yesterday with Catherine that the council in Vancouver or whatever their local council is over there would provide businesses with paint and with solvents and with brushes so that they can do that. And they don't have to go out 
buying the paint remover and buying the stuff that they'd actually be provided twice a year with the necessity that which is necessary to remove graffiti from their buildings. No, it's very hard on businesses. Very hard on businesses. It shouldn't happen. And George would share my view, and I think a lot of people would. The council, to whom businesses pay rates, uh, should be uh, assisting people with a, a kit uh, to deal with graffiti. But thank you for that. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cox 96 FM. Now the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, is giving a briefing to the press at the railway station um, due to start, or was due to start a few minutes ago. We know not what it's about. There may be an announcement of some kind to do with public transport. One assumes Katie O'Keefe from the newsroom is down there. If there is anything breaks before the end of the programme, you'll be the first to know. I promise you that. But yesterday we were talking about electric cars and some messages about the whole drive to get us into electric cars. You know, can they get a million electric cars on the road? Can they convince us all to convert to electric cars? And a few people were saying, look, electric car, one or two people from the motor trade calling in to say, look, the electric cars aren't all they're cracked up to be. Uh, they themselves have a massive carbon footprint. And sales really aren't as huge as those promoting electric cars would like you to believe. And we had a few people responding to that. One of them being Owen. And Owen, you worked in the car trade for a few years. You you would describe yourself as a as a petrol head, but you also drive an electric car and have done for a number of years. But you wanted to address a few points that they're not all they're cracked up to be. Morning. Morning, PJ. Um, I, I'm going to answer the question quickly and then add a bit of context. Um, I think it's false. Um, and just to call out, I'm not an expert here. I did work in the motor trade for 10 years. Um, that was both working in dealerships for myself, but that's over 10 years ago too. So I'm coming uh, at this as somebody who's really just been driving an EV for four years, someone who's still a huge petrol head for balance. Um, I have my motorbikes. I have my big, stupid three-litre petrol car that costs 1,600 euros a year to tax. And I'm not saying everybody needs to buy an EV tomorrow. I'm just conscious that there is quite a lot of misinformation out there about them. And what you've touched on there is probably, um, I guess, two of the biggest myths that are out there, the sustainability and the greenness, right? Um, So the sustainability one came about when really Volvo did a report back in 2021 that made some pretty crazy claims about how long it would take an EV um, to, I guess, drive itself green, to claw back the emissions used in building it, the mining for the materials, yeah. all of that stuff. And it was way off. The moving of stuff around the world to come to where the car is being made, all that. Exactly. Um, and, and, and it was way off because it was, you know, it was making those claims, but it was, um, it was also forgetting that you still move an awful lot of stuff around the world to make a petrol or a diesel car. Um, you're just moving additional materials in terms of batteries. So that report got debunked a million times over. The University of Eindhoven looked at the Volvo study, um, did some actual maths around the claims, and it turns out that most EVs will probably drive themselves green 
in about 17,000 miles uh, or give or take somewhere between six to nine months. Really? Yeah, it's a lot less than people think, but the damage was done. The report got published. People latched onto it, including Rowan Atkinson, who repeated it in the Sunday Times. Mr. Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean, yeah. He's moved on from the Mini. He is a big petrol head, of course. He's a big car fan. Huge petrol head. Um, he's got McLaren F1s. Um, he does motor sport racing. Um, he's, you know, a lot of people would look at him and say he's an authority on it. But sadly, he picked up on this report and quite a lot of motoring journalists took him to task over it. Um, so do EVs have to line, uh, to mine rather, a lot of um, materials? They, they do. Um, but a lot of people don't realise when you're making petrol and you're making diesel, you still have to mine a lot of materials even for that. And that actually includes even cobalt. Mm. Everybody talks about cobalt for car batteries. Um, but when you put cobalt into, let's say, an EV, it's mined once and then it's used over and over and over and over again because you're recharging your car. Um, in a combustion car, you know, you use these min- minerals to, to refine your petrol and your diesel and then you burn them and they're gone. They're heavy. Another comment came in yesterday and someone who said, I'm involved in the motor trade. They consume a lot of C2 in making them. You've dealt with that one. They're difficult to scrap. Disposing of the batteries is a nightmare and their weight is a problem for car parks. I guess I'm not an architect and an architect could probably speak better to car parks, but um, some EVs are, are heavy um, and some are the same as a family car that you would have today. Um, there's very, very heavy petrol and diesel cars out there today. You know, we talk about, and you've talked about people wanting to ban SUVs for being heavy hmm. um, and the car parks don't seem to have collapsed under the weight of those just yet. Um, and EVs are heavy, but I think if you were to put cars on weighing scales, there's not a crazy amount of difference between what's on the market today at the upper end of the weight scale and what EVs are bringing in. Is it true that the, the service sector is nervous because of the low level of maintenance that a, that a well-run EV needs? Well, I, I was in sales myself, but um, I, I obviously would have worked closely with the lads in service and so on. Um, I, I don't think they're nervous, but I think there's going to be a lot of change coming. Um, so if you look at any traditional car today and you look at what's under the bonnet, there's timing belts, there's oil changes, turbos, DPFs, spark plugs, alternators. That's all gone. Um, all you have now is an electric motor a couple of radiators, that's about it. So the servicing model is really just things like brakes and suspension. Um, that revenue is going to tail off for dealerships. That revenue is going to tail off for manufacturers. And hmm. they have to start looking at different ways of, um, I guess, not trying to necessarily claw the money back in a bad way, but to keep their businesses viable. Um, so there's different things coming in now. Uh, you are starting to see the use of subscriptions in cars to enable uh, hardware in the car. So, for example, there's one manufacturer, I'm not going to name names, but they fitted heated seats to the car from the factory by default. But if you want to use them, you sign up to a monthly subscription. (laughs) Um, And I think we're going to have a couple of years of crazy things like that. And I I think ultimately people will push back in it and they'll just want to buy a car and use a car. But there's going to be this flux for a few years where people are trying to figure out ways to make revenue back because EVs are just so reliable and there's no servicing really um, compared to a traditional car. What about this claim that sales are declining? That's a really good question. I know there are some dealers telling people that EVs aren't selling. Um, And I think that's because there's some brands out there that are making EVs that aren't particularly great. 
But if you look at the guys who are killing it in sales, uh, Hyundai, Kia, they can't make cars fast enough. There's wait lists for them. And they're not even, you know, what you would consider the high-end stuff. But interestingly, if you look at the sales figures for 2023, the Tesla Model Y is Europe's best-selling car in the first half of 2023, which is outselling every major brand. It's even outselling, you know, things like the Toyota Corolla. And closer to home, um, according to the SIMI, um, Ireland's EV sales are up 41% year over year. Tesla's an expensive beast, though, you know, and you've got to put charges in and all that. Like, is the expense of buying and owning one coming down? I, I think there is um, absolutely that perception out there. And I'm, I'm going to be straight up here and I say, you know, EVs are not for everybody. And that's a, a mistake I think some pro-EV people make. Um you know, some people are okay to change now and some people will need to wait a bit of time until it's more reasonable for them. But one of the things to bear in mind when you look at an EV is because they are cheaper to run and because they are cheaper to service, um, when you look at the monthly repayment and you say, okay, that's another 150, 200 euros more than what a petrol car would cost me. Mm. Bear in mind, you're probably going to spend 150 to 200 euros a month on fuel and you're probably going to spend that money on servicing them. Now, not every car is going to be affordable, but that's changing too. And as time goes on, the batteries are getting cheaper to manufacture. The cars are getting more, I guess, accessible to people. And there'll be more and more used cars on the market. I mean, I bought my EV used. It was three years old when I bought it. And even though I was coming up from a, a 04 car to a 2017, um, the amount of money I was spending every month didn't change because yeah. I was spending that money previously on petrol, and servicing and tax. And on the new car, um, the monthly repayment pretty much same and my cost to top up the car at night is two or three euros now not everybody can top up their car at home right and especially people in apartments and people who don't have driveways but that'll all change in time too it's changing time zone and I just did want to, to go through a few things with you because I know you were in the trade for a long time pleasure talking to you thanks a lot mate no worries thanks PJ Cheers, cheers on. It is a discussion I imagine we'll have many, many more times before every one of us has an electric car. I don't have one yet. Um, I've not even driven one yet. Uh, people tell me that once you drive one, it's simple and you'll love it and you'll never go back. But I've not tried an electric yet. I've never driven an automatic in my life. So and they're all automatic. So we'll see. I might soon. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six on pub crawls. Where would you start and finish the ideal pub crawl? Annette is off to Dingle for the night. It's a birthday night away. Happy birthday, Annette. And definitely for the day that's in it. Look out at the weather. Definitely up a, a pub crawl beckons. Yeah, there's some fabulous pubs in in Dingle. Uh, Maura de Barra's, if it's still there, that was a fabulous pub right down in the middle of Dingle, um, owned by Maura de Barra, who was a broadcaster back in the day. And she used to serve the most gorgeous mutton pie. Not lamb, mutton. Mutton and onions and carrots inside in a, inside in a sort of a pastry. Fabulous. That's worth the trip in, <laughs> just to check that out. Murphy's Rock is a great place to start and finish a pub crawl. See, I don't know if Murphy's Rock would really count because fabulous pubs. So you go in there in the afternoon and you have a bit of grub and you have a pint and then the music starts. 
and they've Roy Buckley and a few more people, you'll never leave. You'll never leave. So you can't be. But I get your point. I get your point. 0818 96 96 96. Right, we're going to go shucking around. I said shucking. Next. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. Now, there'll be a right crowd of shuckers around the Metropole Hotel tonight. Shuckers. Dirty, rotten shuckers. <laughs> no, I'm only messing. Oyster. When you open an oyster, that's called shucking. Now, I love oysters. Okay, but I've never opened one. I'd have no idea how. But some of the best in the business will be gathering in Cork tonight to be named the Cork Oyster Shocking Champion of 2023. They will be judged by... They will be judged by a man called Paddy McMurray who has flown in from Canada. He's the three-time world oyster record holder. As in, he can open 39 of the things in one minute and he can, he has opened 1,100 oysters in an hour. Now, Paddy, as someone who loves oysters, but has never opened one, how do you even start? Morning. Good morning to you. Fabulous question about opening oysters, because to taste the flavor of the oyster the uh, without any sauce is the best way I like it. You have to just open it up gently. And what I do, and I'll show people when I get into cork, I'll show everybody who wants to learn how to open up oysters. Uh, I go in through the hinge. I'm a table, what's called a tabletop shucker. I do not open in my hands. Right. Uh, I use a tabletop or a block. It's more, I think it's safer. You get better control on the oyster. And so with my oyster hand, which holds the oyster, it provides a lot of pressure. I hold on to it really, really tightly, which means I have to use less force on my knife hand to open it up. And I put the knife tip into the hinge. I just give it a little wiggle, turning a key in a lock until the knife buries itself. It doesn't want to go any further uh, further in. And then just a quarter turn, boom, supinating your hand. So rotating or like a turning a key in a lock will pop that hinge and open it up. Scrape the top, scrape the bottom, and you're off to the races. Because I watched some of your videos and it looks as if there's a sp- like a sweet spot where the mm-hmm. where the knife will turn. So, do you have to find that sweet spot every time you're opening an, oy- an oyster? Yeah, normally it's it's pretty easy to find it. I, I use what's called the hinge. This is with the back of the oyster, where the oyster two shells are attached yeah. and they open up into the, and it has this little opening. It has this little hole that you can see. You can spy even with my my lower-grade eyesight. You can see where the hole is, and the knife can pop in there easily. Rather than going through the side or through the lip or the front of the oyster, you can do that. But it's harder, and you also knock a bit of shell into the meat. We want to keep it grit-free. So going in through the hinge, it seems to be the easiest way for me. And I've gotten to the point where I can almost do a blindfolded type of thing. Where did you learn this, and, and why on earth did you want to learn it other than to get at that delicious meat inside I have no idea. Great question, because like this is for, I'm from Toronto, which is a landlocked city. We have a lake. It's it's pretty big. It looks like the ocean, but it's not. Uh, so there's no local oysters here. We just started working with oysters, and really, um, you know, I, I've been in the restaurant trade since I'm about 16 years old. So uh, it's one of these little food items I learned about when I was 16, and then really didn't get into it after you until after university. And it was just one place I was working at. It's an oyster bar in Toronto called Rodney's Oyster House. 
and it was very, uh, it was fun and exciting. And they we ran a contest. So once we learned how to open up oysters, uh, and I have a degree in kinesiology, which is strange but true. But I use that concept of sports sciences of how to make things more efficient. Okay. So I changed the way that the style of oyster opening was happening, and I created my own little oyster knife, which is the yellow pistol grip thing that you see on all the different things. And that's my kinesiology degree in a nutshell. And then I learned how to work the angles on the anatomy of the oyster. And I used all those techniques, put them all together. Then I got very good at competition. Uh, and once I got into the competition, the, the pinnacle is of course going to Galway. And I won that in 2002. Yeah. And that's when I got a chance to first experience the flavor of oysters from away. And because we're used to the North American oyster, which is great. We have five species to, to enjoy over on this side of the pond. But here, everywhere you go, you're going to have different flavors. And Ireland is rich with oysters all around the circumference of the mm, island. It's fantastic. Mm, yeah. So you can see these different regions. And Cork region is wonderful. And we're going to see some of the Cork region oysters here when I get there. Uh, when I go to Galway, it's something different. Uh, when I up to Dublin, it's, you see some oysters from all over the place. It's, it's a lot of fun to see those flavors. Is it that they're differently flavored by the surroundings in which they're grown? The oyster flavor we call this now the miroir the taste of the region that it comes from it comes from three things the species the region and then the farmer those three factors add into what the overall flavor of the oyster is going to be it's not exactly so a lot of people start out oysters and oysters or all oysters taste the same they do not so we have five different species in ireland you have two you have the natives which are the galway bay oysters or the the, the ostera edulis species european flats and then you have the rock oyster which is called a megalanagegas oyster and they both have a different flavor range the right. gegas are more ocean sea salt sweet cream melon cucumber and then the natives have got this big, bold ocean flavor and lots of mineral, wet stone and a dry tannic finish. It sort of really does remind you of the west of Ireland when you taste it. You sound like a sommelier talking about wine. If I put an oyster in front of you and didn't tell you where it was from and you shucked it and tasted it, can you tell me where it's from? I could tell you the species for sure. And I could probably narrow down the region depending wow. on where I'm at. Um, in a blind taste test, yeah, I could probably do that. And we are actually, it, I'm designing right now with a friend of mine, Julie Chu, uh, an oyster sommelier program that's going to go online. And I'm bringing some of this knowledge. I'll be le doing a quick lecture at the art gallery, the Crawford Art Gallery there. I'm going to talk right. about the Irish and oysters and the local regions and then pairings with uh, beverages and stuff like that as well, as well as showing how to open oysters. What? And there's the beverage. I mean, to me, a lovely fresh oyster is best washed down with a good mouthful of Guinness. But is there something else? There's I I do a fun job of pairing whiskeys and oysters Whiskey. and the flavor. Honest to goodness, ocean sea salt, caramel malt of the whiskey. So malted caramel saltiness on the palate works really really well. And you eat the oyster first, then you tipple the whiskey into the shell. Allow it to marry with that oyster liquor and sip it like that. It's a wonderful thing. So if you pick a, a, a lovely whiskey, say a Middleton that's down here, yeah. uh, the south of Ireland, and you can get that with um, the Rossmore oyster or maybe the Hardy's oyster, which is relatively close. Yeah. So you're talking about opening the oyster, eat the meat, fill the shell with the whiskey and yes, and it mixes and with the, I heard that word used and it's on the videos, liquor. You call it liquor. Liquor. That's right. What is it? Is it water? What is it? 
It's a combination of seawater and the lifeblood of the oyster, which is a clear liquid as it is. So when I'm eating the oyster, I will sip it from the shell. But if I'm going to tipple some whiskey and I want to leave some of that liquor in behind, and it is a beautiful combination. It's very bright ocean sea salt flavors. Again, depending on the region, the salinity is going to be different as well. So when you got into this and learned how to do it and learned how to do it quickly, how did you discover that you can do it competitively the fun thing here, like when and when I was working at Rodney's Oyster House, I went to the first competition two weeks after starting work, which is ridiculous because I barely even washed an oyster, let alone open one. But that's everybody was doing it, so you go and do this. There's traditional year times a year where there's contests, and I found out quickly that if you win the the Ontario's here in Toronto, you get to go to Prince Edward Island. Oh, that's a cool for me. It's a free trip. Nice. If you win Prince Edward Island, you get to go to Ireland. I'm like, hold on one second. If I do Shucky this thing oyster thing quickly and cleanly i could make it to ireland and that was the year this was in 1992 and that was the first year one of the toronto boys actually made it to ireland it's the first time someone actually made it from this part and our world so we thought this is actually a pretty good gig i didn't really get good at it until uh 99 2000 really when i opened up my first restaurant called starfish that's where i i, I started my training uh program for shucking competition and really kind of focus in on it and that's when i won the world championships so i had this great idea but it's a it, it ends up being a fun thing like going to galway the oyster festival is it's one of the pinnacles for all oyster shuckers everybody knows it uh to go to to strive to go to that some people are put off oysters by the fact that it's it's raw it's 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 an animal and you're eating it straight out of its home such as that it's a strange sensation the first time you eat an oyster they say i'd love to try it but but god no i can't it's raw how how do you convince someone to have a go because once you start eating them you can't stop it's true like i've i've done Oyster virgins, and uh, my favorite is the born-again virgin. This is the person who's had oysters before, do not like them, because the first person who taught them either said, close your nose, chew it up, swallow it, douse it in sauce. I kind of step back and I say, look, it just tastes like the ocean. Do you remember? Have you been to the ocean before? People say, oh, yeah, I've been to the ocean. Did you like it? Yeah, I had a great time. Well, this tastes like walking in the ocean. And it has a very, it has a meaty texture to it because sometimes they worry about the viscosity. How is it's it's slimy, and it is not. It is meaty mm. but wet. It's a wet meatiness. And if we keep it nice and cold, then it'll be cold, wet, salty ocean. And if you close your eyes, you can really taste the different flavors. Oh, I want one right now. I want one right now. Yeah. And I walked him through it, and I, I tell him, I go, two-bite chew and aerate, like you're tasting wine, like a sommelier tells you to, to taste wines. So I tell them that, and they're going, they, they can then process that there's going to be a flavor and a texture change. And when I walk them through the process, you can literally see the little twinkle in their eye happen, the light bulb over the head, they get it. And they go, well, that's interesting. Now, there are going to be people who said, no, I just can't handle the texture. I go, well, that's understandable too. And I, so I, I walk them through different ways. And, and if they're, they're I, the minimum I have them try is at least try the liquor. So I'll take the oyster out and here, just sip the water. They can understand that. I go, well, that now the oyster tastes like the water that you just had. You like it, but it's going to have a meaty texture to it as well. And I'd never pressure. I'm like, it's up to you. You're a big person. You can go from here now. And uh, and they either they they jump on board and you know sometimes they don't like it and that's perfectly fine. Cooked or raw? I don't like the cooked oyster, but cooked or raw? 
I'm more of a raw and less than, you know, I like less on, it's like lingerie. I like less on my oyster than anything else. The less is more type of situation. So, and cooking it, you know, you, uh, uh, I do a great smoked oyster. This is what I love to do here now is with turf. So I use, I get, I got a supply of Irish turf here at home. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll fresh shuck. And Go on, you're messing smoke. with me. You got Irish turf in Canada. Yeah, you ju- I, I got a guy in Boston. We don't talk about it because, you know, we just got to know how to get the stuff. So I've got Irish turf. And what I do is I use a little cake dome and I'll flame it up with the turf. And it gives us a kiss of smoke over top of the salt and fresh, raw, gorgeous. Now, if you go that further and smoke it till it's cooked, delicious. And, you know, Morns of the Weir has always got that classic. And in, in the West, they do a garlic oyster, which is butter and garlic and breadcrumbs and crispy and tasty and use your bread to sop up the butter. And it's wonderful. It is gorgeous. With a name like Patrick or Paddy McMurray, there's got to be an Irish connection, is there? Oh, there is. My grandparents came to, to Canada in 1910 from County Antrim. Uh, so I have lineage that way as well, which is nice. And also my great grandmother on my mother's side, uh, was from Cork. Uh-huh. So it's a little bit of a coming back, putting my toe in the water. And, and when I, when I first competed in Galway in 1996, I was reintroduced. It was a great feeling because I, I was introduced as pa- Patrick from Toronto, Canada, representing Canada. And then someone in the middle of the crowd just yelled out from the middle of three, 2000 people going, where are you from? I said, I'm from Toronto. Oh, this is no, no, boy. Oh, where are you from? <laughs> and at that moment, I remembered what my da said when we visited Ireland in the 70s. He goes, if you can't remember where exactly the town is from, you got to remember the county. It's called County Antrim. So that's what I, I instantly remembered this. I said, County Antrim in a question. And the crowd just roared. And the, the announcer goes, the boys come home. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quite an uh, honour to be sort of re-indoctrinated into that Irish culture. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Paddy. It's a pleasure. My pleasure is uh, talking with you as well. Thanks very much. Cheers, Paddy. He's at the uh, Metropole tonight and tickets on Eventbrite. Right, lastly, and very, very briefly, an awful lot of love out there for Claire Dilworth at Cinderella's Closet for just a lovely gesture for a little girl. Claire, someone went and you, you were doing this nice and quietly as, as, as one would. But yes. what a beautiful thing. What happened briefly? It's a lovely way to endure a show here now today at DJ on a Friday on a, on a happy note. So, um, Sean, I got a call in the shop from uh, the lady who actually posted that about this girl and that she was giving up hope of actually being able to go to her depth. So, of course, we were delighted to be able to help her and we're absolutely thrilled because she's such an amazing girl um, and she will get to go to her depth and she's had it tough and she deserves this break. So we're delighted to be able to help her do it. Yeah, this is someone who's involved with young adults in the care system and yes. the poor kid had no money, couldn't afford a dress and... Just you were big. No. You were surprised when we called you, but we had to because it's such a lovely thing to do. Such a yeah. lovely thing to do. Yeah, she had no money. She had no family. I mean, that that would pull at your heartstrings. She, she contacted the care worker. Contacted my daughter Shauna, and Shauna knows that you know being in business now is tougher than ever before. So I knew she wouldn't ask me unless it was for an absolute really good reason, you know, which she spotted it and it really was and we're delighted. All right, well you're being showered with love as a result of it and well you should and well you deserve it. Claire Dilworth of Cinderella's Closet and like she said, a lovely way.
to finish out the week. Philip says, debris. Where do you hear a debris, PJ? That's the kind of breed that disappears at night. It's debris. Tis far from debris, you were raised. Thank you. Philip. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Coach 96 FM.